So how did you come to be interested in the uh, the topic of the the Boeing 7, 737 MAX, you know, tragedies and, and you know, interested enough to write a, a, a book about it? Uh, it, it really comes from my experience um, covering Boeing as a reporter for Bloomberg in the uh, late 90s and early 2000s. I um, moved to Seattle for Bloomberg and I was the beat reporter. And, um, you know, Boeing at the time was was flying high. It was, you know, widely considered, you know, one of the preeminent American manufacturers and um, it had more than 60 percent of the aircraft market. Um, but. Uh, I was surprised to find there was a lot of internal disagreement about the course it was taking. It was pursuing, you know, sort of a strategy replicating what General Electric and Jack Welch were doing and focusing on services rather than manufacturing. And top leadership seemed, you know, less interested in commercial airplanes as a business. Uh, it was trying to mimic Welch and, and pursuing services. And, and really just, you know, engineers at the time were telling me that there seemed to be, you know, less of a basic commitment to, uh, you know, to, to technical engineering that, that, you know, research was being cut back. And, and there was a, in 2000, there was a, a strike that, that where the engineers left for, for 40 days. And, and that was largely due to their disagreements with the company's uh, strategy. So, I mean, there's a, there's a, a very um, powerful narrative that you pull out in the book around the, the kind of, um, you know, the strategic, uh, change to Boeing over over a, a very significant um, uh, pe period period of time. And, I, and I've got some questions. Well, I'd be keen to get into that. But just before we do that, and uh, it, would it be possible just to explain for you, you know, for for those who, who don't know um, what actually happened, uh, you know, in those 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 two really impactful um, accidents? In, yeah, and, and of course, the thing that um, you know, really drew me in uh, what was the two accidents that happened within five months of each other in 2018 and 2019 of um, an almost brand new plane. You know, the MAX was supposed to be a simple update and uh, it um, w was uh, launched, you know, it was flying with airlines. Uh, there was a crash uh, with uh, Lion Air in Indonesia. Um, and then five months later, a crash um, in Ethiopia. And it was, you know, Came quickly apparent that it was due to the same cause, which was that a, a faulty AOA vane had sent a signal to um, a piece of software called MCAS that uh, ultimately tipped the nose of the plane down. And the pilots, you know, despite um, it, it, you know the pilots had no control over you know you know the descent. Um, so so it was you know the single point failure that uh, commercial aircraft aren't supposed to have. And and part of the book was in trying to understand you know how and why that happened. Well, and it paints a pretty horrific picture of how that must have felt for the pilot and for those on board, doesn't it? To have that that kind of um, you know fault where the where the the plane is is literally doing the opposite of what you want it to do. Um, uh, so it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a really terrible fault fault mode that was that, that was exposed through 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 that. So, I mean, do you? Um, so going back to this to the story of Boeing then. So Boeing is and you you paint the picture of Boeing as sort of, you know, pioneers of aviation with a really good safety record. And then you paint the the story of the various things that happened and and and, and almost inevitably seem to happen when your your um your focus shifts to commerciality and 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 and, and um making money. And the bit that in, interests me is the um it's such a long time frame. Uh, the story that you tell 
uh, in the book and it almost feels like there's a horrible inevitability uh, to everything and um so the, i guess the, the two questions i had the first one is um how how from your insights and what you've learned how do you catch that in a in a reasonable amount of time and 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 and, and steer things back and the other question i had really was around um Is it is it really um, is it well that maybe the first question is the, the first, yeah. just to take the first question. Uh, well, it, I mean it's an interesting question because it it does raise the idea of the narrative fallacy. You know, is it is it only obvious because we're looking at uh, it in retrospect? Um, yeah. You know, but but certainly um, even at the time going back twenty years, there were warnings that you know something like what happened with these crashes was likely to happen. And you know the other you know really excruciating thing in um, trying to understand the narrative was that there were people you know on the engineering team who uh, were raising questions about uh, what might happen you know in this failure mode. You know what what happens if we get a faulty AOA vein? And that person is told, you know, oh, don't worry, the system will shut off immediately. And, and mm -hmm. that was incorrect because there was, you know, there was a, um, a faulty communications loop. Um, there'd been a lot of uh, business decisions made that separated people who had previously worked side by side from being in close contact with each other. And, you know, the argument I make in the book is that it ultimately came back to this commercial pressure that was put on the engineering teams and um, that if they'd been given the time, you know, to run all these problems to ground, you wouldn't have seen these crashes. And the engineers that I talked to who had worked there for decades, you know, said that what Boeing's strengths had always been was that it, 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 it identified problems. You know, there are always problems that come up in a, something that has millions of parts. But you know, Boeing's strengths within was in you know putting huge teams of people together and and just crushing the problems. And in this case, more recently, Boeing was was pulling apart its teams and trying to make do with less, and uh, you know, doing all sorts of you know um, you know, uh, and and its 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 structures were you know designed to to focus on services and to outsource you know more and more. The, the other thing that interests me as an engineer is the, and I, and I spend a lot of time thinking about how to manage complexity because there's a growing creep towards automation and to making things more, um, you know, uh, uh, complexity seems to be almost an end in itself sometimes. But actually the, the interesting thing was that the failure mode here, despite all the complexity in the plane, was something that was fairly um, a basic, you know, sort of undergraduate reliability engineering. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's interesting, and and that was and that's sort of the contrast of this plane, which which is a uh, it's you know by the standards of modern aircraft, the seven thirty seven is is rudimentary, you know, according to the pilots and engineers I I talked to, it was designed you know in an analog era before there were significant amounts of software on the plane, and over time, it's been updated so that it's neither one nor the other, um, and and that was where you know, the potential for problems arose because there there is a handoff between the automation and, and the person. And unless the person is aware of what the automation is doing, they're they're not going to be able to intervene and, and understand what's going on. Yeah, no, and that and that um you know that was very apparent from um from reading through the the idea that the 
it just seemed like I guess it's, I don't know if you're familiar with the Swiss cheese model they talk about of accident causation and it's the you know it's a bit like a I was thinking of it a bit like a sort of if you've got a leak you know you, the water's there and eventually the water will find the find the way through the holes and you know so you can call it a narrative you know there's maybe aspects of narrative fallacy if you like but the other side of it is if you put enough pressure on a system uh, eventually you'll find the holes through it and there seemed to be again that classic example of the alignment of the different circumstances where you had the the commercial pressures you had the you know this 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 underlying fault you had the kind of um training requirements being uh, you know sort of watered down uh, you know, you had the failure to put in place the sort of electronic checklist uh, uh, effectively and, and and in effect not making fully visible the um, the MCAS. And then another aspect to it was the regulatory side, which I thought was quite fascinating and the sort of approach to self-assurance. Um, is it possible just to say a few words about kind of what you what you um, gathered around what had happened there and the, the dynamic around that? Yeah, um, for for decades, the um, the regulation had been you know outsourced to some extent from the FAA to the manufacturers um, and the FAA relied on engineers at Boeing to um, you know check off on these dozens and dozens of individual um, requirements that needed to be followed um, which would have you know which ensure that there are you know there's redundancy in, in commercial aircraft systems um, over time the FAA uh, and and there but there were always checks and balances to that and the system that had been in place at Boeing, um, relied on this this dotted line reporting relationship between the delegates at Boeing um, and, and managers at the FAA, but increasingly Congress, um, partly to save money and partly to um, you know for you know sort of philosophical reasons to hand more control to private industry, con Congress started allowing. Um, the FAA uh, allowing managers at the FAA managers at Boeing to sign off on more of their own work, and there was less of a relationship to the FAA manager. The managers at the engineers at Boeing would report to their managers at Boeing. The managers at Boeing would then interface with uh, people at the FAA, and, and the engineers at the ground level felt that what emerged was managers at both the manufacturer and the regulator working together to 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 speed the, the aircraft to, to meet compliance rather than holding the manufacturer's feet to the fire and making sure, you know, from the start that the compliance was met. And it is interesting because I, I like looking at trends and um, partly this is um, complexity driven, isn't it? Because the more you localize design, the more design complexity you make and the more of a sort of broader supply chain you have, the more it is likely that the regulator is not going to have the skills they need to truly understand the system. And therefore, um, it sounds horrific when you look at it in a post-accident scenario, but also it's a it's a function of the growing complexity of some of these technological systems. Yeah, and also just, you know, almost the deliberate dumbing down of, of the regulator that, that, you know, without, you know, it, it was increasingly, you know, lacking funding to hire the best people to train its own workforce um, and and just to have the number of people it needed to to, to do that job. And, and the other another um, aspect to this is, of course, I mean, Boeing is a huge corporation. Uh, and, you know, um, there can't be many people who haven't flown on a Boeing plane you know, many times. Um, and the financial impact, because you, you talk about the cost savings and the cost drivers for this, but the the financial impact of these 
um, accidents is astronomical, isn't it? I mean, I, I remember reading somewhere, was it a quarter of a point of US GDP for a, a, a year or a half year? I can't remember the figure, but it yeah. was something bright. Oh, oh, is the biggest manufacturing exporter, has, has long been the biggest manufacturing exporter in the country. And, you know, you know for, for a long time, it's been also one of the few manufacturers that you know, still has many, many, you know, jobs that are in, in the United States rather than shifting overseas. So um, that that also, you know, has... And a massive supply chain as well, I guess. Yeah, massive supply chain. So that, that plays a role in, you know, decisions made by government where it's difficult to, to uh, you know, to force change when, you know, so much of the economy depends on this company. Yeah, so as well as obviously the massive human cost you've got, you know, so it is an irony, isn't it, that um, that that that, 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 that I guess it's it's always it's the, the analogy, isn't it? The the cost under the iceberg, isn't it? But you know, the if you could if you could properly visualise the the risk <laughs> as, as on the bottom line, um, then clearly those cost savings didn't even make sense from a financial perspective. <laughs> right, right, yeah. I mean, the number that you know, but Boeing, you know, has. For a long time, been reluctant to fully update the 737 because of the it's got the sunk the sunk costs of this huge manufacturing and supply base. Um, you know, the initial tooling is paid off, so its its profitability for each of these airplanes is is good. And so, if it um, were to invest, you know, and in, in, in the the amount that analysts had said Boeing would need to invest for an all new plane would to match Airbus, which developed its plane for the single aisle 20 years later. You know that that amount would would have been 10, 15 billion. Boeing uh, made the argument to its board that no, we can. And the tagline for its pitch to the board said that this new derivative would be stingy with a with a purpose, and the the purpose is to match Airbus but not spend any more than than we needed to. You know, it was that that was going to be a, a billion or or two. Instead, you know, Boeing had this terrible accidents, human toll cost you know to its reputation and the financial penalty ended up being more than 20 billion also when all was said and done are you, are you still following the kind of um you know sort of pr progress and is it uh, do, do you know what what this i know I'm, I'm aware obviously the the planes finally got their certification to go back into operations some time ago internationally and i guess that was quite a bun fight between european regulators and american regulators and 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 others with the ongoing sort of competition between Airbus and, and and Boeing. But are you up to speed with where things are currently? And is it possible to sort of summarize from your perspective? Yeah, well, well, you know, so the MAX is back in service in most of the world. The big exception there is China, which had been, you know, up to a third of, of Boeing's order book for single aisles. But, but China, partly because it's developing its own single aisle plane, seems to be withholding support. Um, so, so that's, you know, that that is a real question for Boeing's commercial prospects going forward if that relationship isn't fixed. And um, the the other way that these accidents set back Boeing was that it had been on the verge of potentially introducing a new single aisle plane to, to match Airbus. Um, and, uh, it would, you know, the 797. Um, however, you know, Boeing has now said that one's not going to happen for at least a decade. In the meantime, Airbus is, you know, scoring, you know, thousand or more orders, you know, well ahead of Boeing in that market. So there's a real risk that Boeing tails off as, you know, McDonnell Douglas did before it and, and becomes a, a secondary 
player, you know, going forward, you know, the things take a long time. So this is going forward over 10, 20 years. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, but but you're right. I mean, nothing is permanent, is it? And, and the, uh, you know, it can, I guess it's certainly an impactful accident that a couple of accidents that is going to obviously have a major impact on the on on the on the business. And um, so as a, as a safety engineer, you know, there are certain um, accidents that have happened in the past that become sort of uh, fundamental in terms of learning. Um, you know, and that's one of the things you can always take out of a, a major accident in consolation. And often, you know, the bereaved do that by saying, well, at least we can make sure that nothing like this ever happens again. You know, so on the safety side, there's, you know, things like Challenger and Piper Alpha and uh, the Bhopal chemical disaster in India. You know, so the, the, and, and for me now, the 737 MAX has become one of those cautionary tales and they each have their kind of high level lessons to learn. How would you we sort of summarize the kind of fundamental learning from the from what's happened with the 737 max i mean the fundamental lesson as it's been described to me is is that you need to take into account the, the human factors that was the 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 core problem in this crash that the reaction of the pilots was not what was expected and that's because their reaction was not tested before boeing introduced this plane and allowed you know the public to fly on it, that there was a rudimentary test done, but it didn't simulate what would actually be happening in the, the cockpit, which which was a big change from how Boeing had proceeded in the past when it tested and tested and tested in, in the real world, you know, each of these um, problems. Um, so, that, so that's something that in the legislation the Congress introduced it, it is supposed to be addressed, that the, hum, the human factors need to be considered in, in any new aircraft. So, you know, hopefully that is a lesson that, that comes out of this and that, um, you know, these problems r relating to the interface between the machine and the and the person um, don't crop up, you know, you know, with the same severity in the future. And, uh, you know, and thanks for writing the, the book, Peter, because as I say, with these with these sort of incidents, it's really good to, to get the learning out of them and to be able to have a really strong narrative, uh, you know, engrossing book as yours is. Is a is a way of keeping some of those messages and information alive and sharing some of the learning. You know, it's you can read the, the technical reports, but I I always try and um, you know sort of search out the books like yours because it's a way of it's a way of engaging with the topics without it being too dry or feeling like work. So um, for, for what it's worth, thanks for <laughs> thanks for taking the time and effort to to, um, to, to do that. Uh, are you um, has it piqued your interest for any other similar sorts of issues in the safety and technological space? And is there anything you're researching on? now that you could you know talk about uh i mean i i i'm, I'm still an investigative reporter for bloomberg so i'm you know always looking into to, to new things but um it it uh the the main thing i'm writing about lately is online sports betting so that's, <laughs> <laughs> well that's interesting. i'm quite interested in that myself as, as yeah I'm, I'm quite interested in that myself as a um, as a student of probability and risk assessment but uh, there you go maybe that's another conversation that's a, that's a different <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, thanks ever so much, Peter. It's a pleasure talking to you. And, um, and uh, you know, I, I would highly recommend the book for anybody who's listening and wants to get a you know, really engrossing um, uh, trip through the story of, of this sort of, um, you know, as I say, um, uh, really important learning, learning experience of these accidents. Thank, thanks so much. I, re I really appreciate your, your taking the time.